So last week I gave an overview of how the teachings in the Noble Eightfold Path are often grouped into a set of three broad areas of our lives, being ethical conduct or sila, meditation or samadhi, and wisdom or panya. And the first two factors of the path, right view and right thought or right intention, are classified as wisdom factors. And as I said last week, it's because we need some initial wisdom to even get ourselves on the path in the first place. But today we're going to move on to the ethical conduct part of the path, which includes the factors of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And as I said last week, I think of these broadly as being more of the the relational aspects of the path because they're about how we show up in the world, how we interact, what we say, what we do, how we engage with our work lives, our livelihood. So these three all come under the heading of sila, ethical conduct, sometimes translated as morality. So what is... Sila, as a very basic working definition, it's uh, ethical conduct in the sense of committing to not harming ourselves or others through actions of body, speech, and mind. And it's important to keep in mind that this is done voluntarily. It's not done out of a sense of obligation or obedience or because someone tells us to or out of duty. It's a voluntary undertaking of the training and even though this uh, sila is foundational to the path it's not a teaching just for beginners in fact it's endlessly refinable as I'm sure many of of you have discovered as I've been emphasizing the Buddha taught a graduated path one that develops um, progressively And as I said last week, he started with dana. When he was um, talking to new people, he started with generosity with dana. That's a pretty accessible place for people to start. And when he felt like they'd understood the value of generosity and there was some reciprocal engagement with with that understanding, he then brought in the teachings on sila, because there's quite a powerful link between generosity and ethical conduct. And in some of the suttas, he talks about when we keep the precepts, we give a great gift, an immeasurable gift of freedom from anxiety and hostility and so on to others by our commitment to non-harming. And he goes on to say, and we ourselves share in that great gift because we ourselves give ourselves the gift of non-remorse, freedom from anxiety, blame, self-judgment, and so on. So there's keeping ethical precepts, um, keeping um, this commitment to non-harming is a very powerful act of generosity. So the path, as I said last week, it has these three broad arenas, but they all feed into each other and we start, it's not a linear path. So for example, as we develop our ethical conduct, we give ourselves the gift of freedom from remorse, regret, blame, shame, and so on. The mind becomes more clear. And when the mind is more clear, we have 
greater capacity to develop deep levels of calm, of concentration, which are necessary for the transformative insights that lead to wisdom, the uh, panya. When we understand things more clearly, when we have more wisdom, we feed that back into our ethical conduct and we start to see, perhaps you've experienced this in your own lives, things that a few years ago that you thought were a bit marginal, but oh well, what the hell, I'll just do it anyway. With greater wisdom, you realize that's really not so useful, not so helpful, I'm not going to do that. So the ethical conduct becomes more refined. And when the ethical conduct is more refined, the mind states become more refined. The capacity for insight, calm, concentration, clarity also becomes more refined. So this constant cycling through these three arenas is more like a a spiral. I think of it as an upward spiral rather than a linear step-by-step path. So this commitment to ethical conduct is traditionally uh, undertaken in the form of the five training precepts. Is everybody familiar with those? No. So usually when we go on retreat, we formally make a commitment to taking the five training precepts. The first one is, I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. The second one, I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking intoxicants which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. And on one level, these precepts might seem basic and obvious, but as I um, have been saying, they can be endlessly refined. And we start by abstaining from what's harmful, but as the practice develops, we start to actively cultivate what's helpful, beneficial, and skillful. So, for example, the, these precepts are sometimes also um, offered in their, what we could say, their positive form. So the U.S. Dharma teacher Matthew Flickstein, for example, he frames them as avoid killing and act with reverence towards all forms of life. Avoid stealing and cultivate generosity. Avoid sexual misconduct and be considerate in intimate relationships. Avoid lying and relate what is true while remaining sensitive to the potential impact of all communication. Avoid intoxicants which confuse the mind and cause heedless behavior and ingest only those substances that are nourishing and supportive of peaceful abiding. So we can see that the precepts start to open up to a whole spectrum from basic refraining abstaining on one side to actively cultivating the skillful qualities on the other. And I like to keep in mind these positive aspects of the precepts because when we broaden them like that, we can see that we're all already doing quite a lot in this area. And yet because many of us have pretty strong conditioning around concepts like morality and ethics and so on, it can trigger for some people inadequacy, judgment, 
shame, fear, not good enough, or rebellion. You know, no one's going to tell me what to do, thank you very much. So we can often come into contact with some pretty strong conditioning when we start to look at this whole field of ethical behavior. So during this week, as we're exploring these, I just encourage you to notice if there are some of these forms of conditioning and see if you can really um, meet them with kindness and compassion, particularly self-compassion, as we were doing last week. So just in relation to this, a couple of years ago, I was talking to Gil Fronsdal, and he was talking about different religious and spiritual traditions. And he made the point that for me was quite illuminating, that um, traditions or religions where there's a God, so theistic religions, they have this sense of an external observer, judge, who's watching your every move, and if you put a foot wrong, you're going to end up you know, in hell or something like that. We don't have that in Buddhism, which doesn't have an overall god like that. And But he said in non-theistic religions, there's often an internalized sense of idealism and of perfectionism. So we hear about the Buddha as the perfectly enlightened one, and we have these ten paramis, these ten qualities that we can perfect. And we have all of this training towards this idea of nibbana. And it can create this internal judge of not good enough, more to do, get rid of the defilements and so on. So when I heard Gil, Gil say this, I thought, wow, you know, in the West we have the worst of both worlds because we have the Judeo-Christian heritage with its external judge and then we can unconsciously bring in this internal judge in the form of idealism and perfectionism and really, you know, tie ourselves in knots. So this invitation to explore sila is also, you know, an invitation to notice what are the beliefs and views and constructs and um, conditioning that I have around this um, area and to try not to get bogged in self-judgment. And if you find that's happening, to really consciously turn to the other side of the scale and to acknowledge, what am I actually already doing well? You know, none of us here, as far as I can tell, are acting out, you know, in gross forms of ethically inappropriate behavior and if we really look there's a lot of times when we are uh, you know orienting towards kindness and compassion and non-harm so really invite you to let that in so when we come to this first uh, factor of or these factors of ethical conduct in terms of speech and action and livelihood it's a lot (laughs) So I'm not going to try and cover all of them today. I'd like to just focus on speech because for myself and many of the people I work with, that seems to be the single most challenging one. So when I read you the list of precepts just before, anybody notice which ones felt more challenging than others? Speech. Speech, yeah. So pretty clear that speech for most people is pretty challenging. Especially when, you know, we sometimes it's framed as, the precept is framed as not lying. 
But the Buddha was actually more nuanced than that in his definition of right speech. And he talked about it as avoiding not only lying, but avoiding abusive speech, divisive speech, and idle chatter. So it's it's pretty refined. <laughs> and I think he did this because we all know for ourselves that our words have enormous power to cause harm. And in some ways, this is even more true today where technology allows instant communication and we're even more interconnected globally than ever. So Bhikkhu Bodhi makes this point in his book on the Noble Eightfold Path. He says, speech can break lives, create enemies and start wars. Or it can give wisdom, heal divisions and create peace. This has always been so, yet in the modern age, the positive and negative potentials of speech have been vastly multiplied by the tremendous increase in the means, speed and range of communications. So if you think also of all the social media, uh, there's a huge amount of communication that's going on for good and for ill. So this development of right speech moves beyond just lying to really more increasingly refined aspects of our speech. So we might start to notice, you know, we start with trying to not lie, but then as our wisdom gets stronger, our mindfulness gets stronger, we might start to notice perhaps more subtle types of unhelpful speech, such as gossip or idle speech or cynicism or exaggeration or little ways of shading the truth to kind of enhance our self-perception. There's many, many different, just not so skillful ways that we can use speech. And then as we start to let those go, we consciously start to refine and move towards more skillful forms of speech. So I'd like to read you the passage from uh, the Diga Nikaya number two. It's quite long, but it, it just breaks down what the Buddha was pointing to with right speech. He says, abandoning false speech, he or she abstains from false speech. He or she speaks the truth, holds to the truth, is firm, reliable, no deceiver of the world. This, too, is part of his or her virtue. Abandoning divisive speech, he or she abstains from divisive speech. What he or she has heard here, he or she does not tell there to break those people apart from these people here. What he or she has heard there, he or she does not tell here to break these people apart from those people there. Thus, reconciling those who have broken apart or cementing those who are united, he or she loves concord, delights in concord, enjoys concord, speaks things that create concord. This, too, is part of his or her virtue. And this word concord is not so familiar for some people, but it basically means harmony. Then he goes on, abandoning abusive speech. He or she abstains from abusive speech. He or she speaks words that are soothing to the ear, that are affectionate, that go to the heart, that are polite, 
appealing and pleasing to people at large. This too is part of his or her virtue. Abandoning idle chatter, he or she abstains from idle chatter. He or she speaks in season, speaks what is factual, what is in accordance with the goal, the Dhamma and the Vinaya, the code of conduct. He or she speaks words worth treasuring, seasonable, reasonable, circumscribed, connected with the goal. This too is part of his or her virtue. So, wow, you know, there's a lot in there that we could really bring our attention to. And just to imagine if everything we said was aimed at creating concord or was seasonable and reasonable, that's pretty, uh, be a very different world if we were able to do that. And we can hear in those quotes that, um, it's not just about speaking the truth. And just that, I think, is worth highlighting because in many Western cultures, um, there can be this tendency to say, well, if it's true, I have a right to speak it. And sometimes you hear people say, well, I was just speaking my truth. You know, doesn't matter about the context or the person's ability to hear it. If it's true, I have a right to say it. But the Buddha gave some very clear instructions about this, about how we decide whether something is worth saying or not. And he said, practitioners, a statement endowed with five factors is well-spoken, not ill-spoken. It is blameless and unfaulted by knowledgeable people. Which five? It is spoken at the right time. It is spoken in truth. It is spoken affectionately. It is spoken beneficially. It is spoken with a mind of goodwill. So there's a lot there. It's spoken at the right time, in truth, affectionately, beneficially, with a mind of goodwill. So I read an interesting example of this from a Western monk who had spent time in Thich Nhat Hanh's Sangha in Plum Village. And he described how he and another monk had been invited to do some kind of task together. I think it may have been organizing an event. And the other monk, according to the Western one, wasn't pulling his weight, didn't do what he was supposed to do. So the next time they had a community meeting, the Western monk stood up and said, he didn't do this, he didn't do that, he was supposed to do the other. He didn't get very far before Thich Nhat Hanh basically said, sit down and shut up. And the monk said to him, well, I was just speaking my truth. And Thich Nhat Hanh said, if it wasn't spoken with metta, it's not true. You know, so this really shifts our understanding of what is meant by the truth. And what I find interesting is, though, even though I think most of us would agree that right speech is a good idea, don't know about for you, but for me, that intellectual understanding is not enough. And even though I have these intentions, there are conditions, circumstances where I find myself not practicing right speech. And I'm like, wow, you know, how did that happen? So what do we need to do to support the capacity to practice right speech? And the first one is really mindfulness really having a very strong foundation of mindfulness 
in the field of speaking and listening. Because unless we have some degree of awareness, we're just going to fall into habit patterns. And that's partly why I've been introducing just the very tip of the iceberg of the insight dialogue practices to try and help support that um, capacity to stay present, even with the momentum of speaking and listening. And, you know, on one level we can think that it's pretty obvious that mindfulness of speaking and listening is a good idea, but it's quite radical. So when I was bringing these teachings into the prison system, the first time I described insight dialogue to the guys, one of the men got quite agitated and he he said, "Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that what happens here doesn't have to come out here? And I said, yeah, basically that's it. What happens in the head doesn't have to come out of the mouth. He said, man, that's amazing. If you could help me do that, I will be so happy. He said, because in here I run off at the mouth all the time. And in here that's dangerous. Now, we don't live in as extreme situation as a prison, but we do know that running off at the mouth is dangerous. So having that strong intention to really bring awareness to what's happening is the first step. And inevitably there are times when things don't go the way we would have liked. So there's a practice that I'll be offering as a guided meditation this week that I think of as post-mortem mindfulness. So usually mindfulness is in the present moment. But this is a, a kind of an investigation after the fact to see when something didn't go the way we had hoped, what happened there? So we can go back and consciously recreate the situation and try to really stay in the body and the heart to notice what was getting triggered, what were the underlying motivations, emotions and so on that led to this blurting out of unskillfulness. And then once we have more clarity, we can try and protect ourselves from falling into that same situation again. So this is in line with the Buddha's teachings that he gave to his son Rahula when Rahula was a novice novice monk. He said to Rahula, having performed a verbal act, you should reflect on it. If on reflection you know that it led to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both, it was an unskillful verbal act with painful consequences, painful results, then you should confess it, reveal it, lay it open to the teacher or to a knowledgeable companion in the holy life. Having confessed it, you should exercise restraint in the future. But if on reflection you know that it did not lead to affliction, it was a skillful verbal action with happy consequences, happy results, then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful training day and night in skillful mental qualities. So again, it's important to notice when we are doing things that are helpful because that sets up a positive feedback loop just as much as any remorse that might come from recognizing what was unhelpful. And although he's referring to laying it open to the teacher and to confessing it because he's talking in a monastic context, We don't necessarily have that formal um, opportunity, but it can be helpful to acknowledge when there's been some kind of unskillfulness. 
So, for example, the other day, I got caught in some old habit patterns and I was talking to some friends and afterwards I realized, you know, that wasn't very helpful. I was actually giving this talk on right speech yesterday and thinking of all the ways that I just an hour before had not been practicing what I was talking about. So I emailed the people and just said, you know, this unapologized and said, you know, this is where it didn't measure up. And it can feel awkward and a little bit embarrassing to do that, but it, I think it acts as an incentive because if we really make the effort to do that and to face that awkwardness, we can remember, you know, this, this was uncomfortable. Let me not do that again next time I'm with those people in a similar situation. And just a caution, sometimes people hear all this stuff about right speech and no frivolous talk and no idle chatter and so on and think, oh, you know, it's going to take all the fun out of a um, person who can't engage in so-called normal conversation. But that's really not what it's about. It's looking at what's the deeper intention and the deeper purpose and what serves in the direction of freedom, which is greater ease and happiness so at times with things like gossip we might notice you know there can be an initial sense of connection or um, a kind of a pulse of pleasure with it but often after the fact how does that feel you know there's it's rarely a sustained or wholesome kind of enjoyment and often if we manage to refrain from gossip we feel a, perhaps a more subtle kind of pleasure or relief or uh, the freedom from non-remorse as it talks about a lot in the suttas and so all of this training in virtuous behavior is intended to lead us into deeper stronger more sustainable forms of happiness so the buddha was talking to ananda and he said the purpose and benefit of wholesome virtuous behavior is non-regret the purpose and benefit of non-regret is joy. The purpose and benefit of joy is rapture. The purpose and benefit of rapture is tranquility. The purpose and benefit of tranquility is pleasure. The purpose and benefit of pleasure is concentration. The purpose and benefit of concentration is the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. The purpose and benefit of the knowledge and vision of things as they really are is disenchantment and dispassion. And the purpose and benefit of disen disenchantment and dispassion is the knowledge and vision of liberation. Thus, Ananda, wholesome virtuous behavior progressively leads to the foremost, i.e. to Nibbana. So we can see that kind of spiral that I've been talking about, how all these factors are engaged in the service of deepening freedom, which um, is its own kind of happiness. And we could probably spend six weeks just exploring that passage, but I just wanted to highlight that all of this leads to, to pleasure, to joy, to tranquility, to very skillful states of mind. So I'm going to running out of time a little bit, but just to um, try and keep it more concise, the second support for 
right speech is to be cultivating, as many of you were sharing earlier, the underlying right thought qualities of kindness and compassion. Because if, as we said earlier, what the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of the mind, out of that is where our speech is coming from. So if we can cultivate these uh, deep levels of kindness and compassion so that they become more the default setting of the mind, then we have a better chance of what emerges from our mouths being in alignment with that kindness and compassion. So I think of doing formal metta and compassion practice as being, in a way, cultivating a soft armor. It provides the kind of resilience that makes us less impacted by the inevitable unskillful behavior of others or our own internal aversion, frustration, and so on. So in the suttas, the Buddha talks about the power of this, you know, how everything comes from our mind states, that with our thoughts we create the world is one translation of the opening lines of the Dhammapada, I'd like to read you a slightly different translation where he says, All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So we see this connection between right view, right thought, and right speech very clearly in those quotes. And there's a lot in that. So I'd like to finish here. Thank you for your attention. And in a moment, we'll move into exploring this more directly. So... Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.